As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. 
for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we confess that many of these things are baffling to our minds, the words of Jesus about the future. We ask that by your spirit, you would lead and guide us into fuller understanding of all that is revealed. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Undoubtedly, the most pages in all the commentaries that I read this week on the Gospel of Mark are devoted to this chapter. And when pages and commentaries are devoted to things, it means that it's not clear. What in the world is going on? Many of you read this and you're thinking of, uh, of elaborate charts that you may have seen at one point in your life and how there's a sequence of events that's leading up to the end and that Mark 13 perfectly fits inside of this. For those on the scholarly side, you're thinking of all kinds of historical things. And for most of you, you're probably just thinking, what in the world? What is the function of that? What am I supposed to do beyond just hear that basic command to stay awake? And so I always have found great comfort in in our theological tradition, the Westminster Confession. uh, There's a statement in the opening chapter. Okay, it's a chapter about Scripture, and it says this, that all things in Scripture are not alike plain. That has always been extremely comforting to me. And some people say, why is that comforting you? That the, the Bible doesn't speak clearly about everything. And it's because of what the, the writers went on to say is that everything about salvation is plain and is clear. And friends, there are things in the Bible where there is room for debate because it's not about the essentials of salvation. And when it comes to Mark chapter 13, we just have to confess that there is a broad expanse of interpretation, and there are many different understandings. And you may walk out of here today thinking, I don't agree with him. And that's okay, because obviously, I don't agree with you. But we can respect one another and we can laugh because this is one of the most difficult and demanding passages in all of the New Testament. It's hard. And so what we're going to do this morning is just ask, what are we supposed to do with this? And what can we know from this passage? Okay. And so this is just going to be straight on. It's not your typical style sermon that you'll hear from me, but we're just dealing with what can we know from this passage and what value does it have for our lives today? There are six things. Now, I know I blew up on you last week in in the sermon because we had so many verses, but these six will move expeditiously. The first one is this. We know that God makes good on His Word. In this complicated and tangled passage where Jesus speaks about future things, we can confidently assert this, that God makes good on His Word. If you'll turn with me to verse 30. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation, looking at his disciples, will not pass away until all these things take place. 
So everything he has just spoken about is going to take place before this generation passes away. Then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Jesus is pointing to the fact that what he has just spoken about is going to be fulfilled in the life of this generation. Now, many people start to puzzle immediately right there. Because aren't we talking about the return of Jesus where he comes back to to creation to rescue his people and renew the whole world? I invite you back to the beginning of the chapter as to what sets the entire context um, for, uh, for the discussion we're having. Jesus comes out of the temple. One of the disciples says, teacher, look at these great buildings. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And then they go out of the city. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which was the hill directly across from the temple. It was the promise of where new creation would break into the world, actually. And there, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us when these things will be. Tell us when the temple is going to be taken apart stone by stone. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so, friends, it's really essential that we, uh, that we put Jesus' teaching here in the context of the questions that he was answering to the disciples. He was answering those two questions. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And it is my opinion that much of what Jesus says here, not the entirety of it, is fulfilled in one specific historical event that happened in 70 A.D. Jesus has said earlier in the parable of the tenants that if the tenants kill the son, he asked the rhetorical question, what would the landowner do when he returned to the vineyard? And Jesus said that he would bring judgment. That the landowner would bring judgment. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so friends, here, Jesus is speaking about the central symbol of Israelite identity and faith, which was the temple installed on Mount Zion. And he is saying that God was going to return and bring judgment on the temple because of the unfaithfulness of Israel to walk with God. That they had been unfaithful to their vocation. And Jesus is here teaching something about the future from his standpoint that day. Something that would vindicate him, that would let everyone know that he was the true prophet, that the temple was not going to stand. And so we can take away from this history lesson that God makes good on every word of promise that he speaks, that he fulfills it. That His Word is good and true and trustworthy no matter the delay. Now the Colson family just got a dog last Saturday. It was a long week because the majority of the Colson family left for the week. And so I'm glad it was spring break of some sort. I shuttled back and forth between home working on potty training and housebreaking this week. But that's not the point. Sophie the dog came to us last week And Sophie was a long time coming. It was a little over a year ago where the kids received a Christmas gift. There was a dog bowl and a dog collar. 
They opened it, looked at it. They all ran to the window, I think, and looked in the backyard to see if the, the, the fulfillment was there, and it wasn't. They were given a promise that when we moved to Florida, we would get a dog. And so there was excitement. There was great glee. You know, basically the day we arrived, they are asking the question, well, when do we get our dog? And there have been a lot of transitional matters, and there have been a lot of distractions this year, and it's been a full year. And so there just wasn't the highest priority on purchasing the dog. And then being new, not knowing who breeders are and how you go about buying a dog and all this kind of stuff, I wasn't sure how to do it. And so got a little bit stuck. And so we had promised our kids, we'd even given them some kind of down payment in that they had a dog collar. But they were beginning to doubt. There was some cynicism growing in the Colson household about whether we were going to have a dog or not. That was it really going to happen? Does dad stay true to his word? Is he going to make good on what he promised? Friends, those are the natural questions that arise when we have received a promise and then we live in the time between the promise and the fulfillment. And that's the place where all of us live our Christian lives that we've received promises that have not yet been completely fulfilled. And the question is, do we have faith that God is the kind of God who keeps His Word and fulfills His, his promises, that He makes good on His claims? And from this, we see a historical lesson that yes, this God does that. He makes good on His claims. When He says this generation will not pass away, He made good on it. Because the destruction of the temple was final. The Romans came into the city because of the Jewish rebellion. They fought from 66 to 70, and the temple was destroyed in 70. And that's how it went. Jesus makes good on His Word. Now, the second thing we can know is that we know that God provides for His people, accomplishing His purposes, even through tribulations and trials. You read a lot of material in chapter 13, especially from verses 3 into the next section in 23, where there was going to be difficulty. There was difficulty promised to those in Jerusalem that there would be suffering like had never been seen from before creation. It's a gruesome scene. Josephus gives us the gruesome scene of Jerusalem under siege by the Romans. It was intense suffering. It was horrible. I want you to Turn with me to verse 20. Because in the midst of the promise that there would be trial and tribulation that was going to fall on the head of the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Friends, this is the great mystery of God's providence and His plan working itself out in the history of time. But God does care for His people. And this great trial and tribulation that He brings in Jerusalem in judgment, His people were also subject to it in ways, but He shortened the days that He cares for them, that He was preserving them, that He was maintaining them, even instructing them through Jesus' words to flee when they saw the abomination of desolation which that's just code language on, on pagan gods being erected in the temple. That it was time to go. Run because judgment was here. But what we see is that God work, is working out His plan 
He's meticulously doing so. He protects his people, his elect, those singled out by him for his favor. He cares for them. And this is what's true about our lives even still today. Even if this is a historical moment, we can take the principle and point that through all the chaos and disruption of world history, through all the things that can happen to the people of God in the history of the church, and there are many history books full of sad stories that we know that God cares for His people, He protects them, that He nurtures them, that He gives them grace and mercy. Even in trial, He gives them the Holy Spirit to fill them with words of what to say as Jesus promised His own disciples. And it is on this basis, believing that God cares for us, His people, His elect, that we have a confidence and a repose about ourselves no matter the circumstances of our lives. That it gives us something firm to build on. That we don't have a God who in the heavens is wringing His hand about what's going on. That He fully knows it and His plan is working itself out. Mysterious to us. And yet going to its purpose. Driving to its climax and pinnacle for Him. And so that's the second thing that we know. The third thing we know is that Jesus, the rightful King, is seated at God's right hand. Now, if you turn with me in chapter 13 to verse 24, this will be the most difficult moment in the sermon for many of you today, just because of the way that we are oftentimes accustomed to reading these verses. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And most people are accustomed to saying that this is Jesus' future prediction of His return to the earth. And it's understandable why. It really is. But I remind you again of verse 30 that Jesus says all these things will be fulfilled in this generation. Last time I checked, He hasn't returned. And so what is He speaking of here? What could this possibly mean? It's important to note that Jesus in His sermon here quotes the Old Testament extensively. I couldn't even unpack for you all the different allusions to the prophetic literature. But this allusion is very clear. He's referring to Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 is about the Son of Man who comes in the power and glory on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man is vindicated over and against the nations as He not descends but ascends to the Ancient of Days. And do you see what Jesus is saying? When He talks about the coming of the Son of Man, He's not talking about the descent of Jesus to the earth. He's talking about the ascent of Jesus into the heavenly places where He's enthroned at God's right hand. That for many years we've probably misread the reference to Daniel. That Daniel 7 is about the vindication of the Son who was the great King who would bring God's sovereignty and rule into the world. And so when he gives the imagery of the moon 
not giving its light, of the sun being darkened, of the stars falling. This was the common way in the prophets, if you were to look in Isaiah 13, of talking about major political upheaval that is happening when God's judgments take place. And so it's not necessarily speaking of the cosmic collapse of the universe, as many would have it, but it's speaking of the major upheaval that would happen because Jesus was saying, when the temple is judged, you will see that the Son of Man has come in power and glory, that He was truly the King, that He has been vindicated, that His words in the past came true in the future, that He was Israel's Messiah and Deliverer who was leading her to bless the nations, and you missed it. But what we know is that Jesus is the rightful King, that He rules over all the world despite appearances, no matter how chaotic the world may seem, that He is the King. He was declared so through death and resurrection and now installed at God's right hand. And the firm Christian conviction is that what is true in heaven will be true on the earth. This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our core belief, that the realities of heaven one day will be fleshed out in the earth and that Jesus is the true King. Now, while I was serving as a pastor in Washington, D.C., I lived through several election cycles. And it was always entertaining during election season because you would see the fervor and the excitement arise amongst different political parties. And I was there for different rises of the tide. I was there when the Democrats had a rising tide of enthusiasm and optimism about a utopian America that was going to be recreated and remade. I was there when Republicans had a resurgent election season, and it was now that we're taking the country back. I was there when the Libertarians got more than 100 votes, and so their followers were all excited. And we had all three of these factions in our, in our church community, and you would watch people swell with excitement and plummet into discouragement, depending on what side of the aisle they found themselves. And so it became our custom on the Sunday following that Tuesday in November when we vote that we would have a cadence, that there would be the same sermon. And the sermon basically went like this. If you are overly excited, or if you are overly depressed, then you are not thoroughly Christian. The friends, the most important fact that has been established in the history of the world is not determined in a democratic election taking place in the United States of America. There are no hanging chads. There are no ballots that didn't get counted. There's nothing amiss that Jesus, through death and resurrection, has conquered all sin and evil. He has destroyed it. He has brought it into judgment. And now he has been vindicated and installed at God's right hand where he rules over everything. And he promises one day to return to make it all right, to recreate the world as to what it was always and intended to be. And friends, that's the confidence of the Christian. And that's our core convictional belief. And so no matter the chaos, no matter the political upheaval, the Son of Man has come in authority. That He has ascended to the Ancient of Days and has been installed as the true King. Fourth thing that we can know. We know that God intends to bless the nations. 
That is God's great intent as part of this story. Look with me in verse 27. Following the announcement that the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels. The word angels can also be translated messengers. Okay? It has both reference. He will send out His messengers and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now, for many years, this verse has been read in such a way that says, oh, this is the rapture. The angels go out and swoop God's people up and take them into heaven. It's possible. But given everything that we're learning, I think what we see is that this is the great commission taking place and unfolding in the history of the world. That Jerusalem at its judgment was a stronghold. Many Christians were there, and guess what happened when the temple was raised by the Romans? There was a great dispersion. And the people of God go out into all the nations running from the Romans. And do you see what God's mysterious purpose was in all this? Because His messengers would go out and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That is, that they go out and gather the people of God from all the nations of the earth. All those God has singled out for His favor. Chosen in Christ, He now purchases through the preaching of His people going out and declaring the Gospel. And they come to faith and repentance in Jesus' name. God is for the nations. That is what we learn here. That the ascended Jesus sends out His people into all the world. And friends, the marvelous kind of value of these things for the church is that we quickly recognize that the church, the household of God, can be no place for racism. That we are a place for the nations of the earth. All of God's creatures in all their races, in all their classes, that there's no snobbery to be had. And that we, the people of God, are to give ourselves with all of our heart, with all of our resources, to this mission in the world. That we are to go, that we are to give, that we are to participate, that we are to fully give ourselves for what God is now doing in sending out His messengers to all the winds to gather His people. Because this great cause of God reconciling the nations to Himself, this is what Jesus ascended on high for and then says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So this is our primary passion. This is what we give ourselves to. God intends to bless the nations. Fifth thing that we learn is we know how things will end. Jesus will return, and we know that we don't know when that will be. Now, the reading I've given you thus far has said that this sermon of Jesus was fulfilled at 70 A.D. I do think when you arrive at verse 32, you find something different. Turn with me there. Jesus uses the word but, and then He begins to refer to a singular day and a singular hour. It's unique in the entire sermon up to this point. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And Jesus begins to speak about a day and an hour when the Master will return to the house. 
that he has left his servants, he's given them a charge and a duty, and then he will come back. And friends, we know how the story wraps up. Many of you have heard me tell the story of my wife who loves to read books. And when she gets a new book, she reads the first chapter or two, and then you'll find her reading the end of the book. And every time I see it, it puzzles me, and I ask her why. She reads the first couple of chapters to understand the characters and who all is involved. Then she reads the end to know how it resolves. And many people say, that just ruins it. Why even read the book? Friends, your Christian life works the same way. You're given the end in the middle of the present tensions that you live through. But the end has extraordinary value. It reduces the tensions and anxieties you may feel while you're living the book, while you're reading it. And so Melissa finds great satisfaction knowing the end of the book and then can just enjoy the story and go up and down in it, but she knows how it resolves. And that's the truth of what God has done for us as well. We know how this resolves. That the Son of Man who's been enthroned at God's right hand will return and that He'll come to judge and refine the earth, recreating it and making it new, purging it, purifying it. And that it becomes the home of righteousness, as Peter says. Creation as it was intended to be in its full flourishing and life and beauty. God's people restored to Him to walk with Him in the garden in the cool of the day. Beautiful imagery from the Scriptures about what God will do on that great day. So we know the end. And the end allows us to endure the present. Chaos and disruption. All the things that can go wrong. And the thing is, is that we have to be focused on the what God plans to do not the when God plans to do it. And the church's focus has been heavily given to the when. Trying to understand what the signs are, what's leading up to it. And I've always puzzled at that. Because Jesus seems fairly clear. But concerning that day or that hour, we could do this all together. No one knows. And I've always puzzled and thought to myself, you know, what part of no one knows don't we get? <laughs> you know, but you could go back in history. You could read the likes of John Wesley, Isaac Newton, more contemporary Harold Camping, Jerry Falwell, Jack Van Impey. Multiple people have predicted the end of the world and they didn't quite get the message. You don't know. <laughs> it's above your pay grade. Jesus says He doesn't know. It's in the Father's mind as to where that is. And friends, that's the truth. And so we can relax. We know that we don't know when it will be. We know that it will be. And that incredible reality that's out in front of us, that great hope of the renewal and restoration of all things, gives us a buoy in the present to ride through all the present tensions and disappointments, setbacks, trials, tribulations that we may experience. It even allows us to go down into death with confidence that God will one day undo that as well. And so we know how it ends. The final thing that we know from this passage 
we know that we are to remain awake, serving God faithfully. Multiple times in the passage, you hear the command, the admonition to stay awake, to be alert. Verse 35, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus tells a parable at the close of his sermon that the master leaves the servants in charge, that they have certain duties and things they were to accomplish, and this one who he addresses was to stay awake. And friends, between the two poles of promise and fulfillment, this is the great challenge. To stay awake. To not be lulled off to sleep. To not be dragged off by what Jesus says in Mark 4 4, about the loves, the cares, and the pleasures of life. To not become distracted and not get lost in all the things that the world has to offer and lose what our present duties are to our King who is not present. And that is what Jesus said that Israel ultimately had to be judged about. They were not faithful tenants. And so He's admonishing us to stay awake, to be faithful in the charge that He's given to us, to be good and faithful servants of His, following Him in faith, confessing our sins, acknowledging our wrongs, renewing our obedience to Him, seeking to serve the nations of the earth, loving our neighbor and loving God. This is what it means to stay awake. One of my good friends was an army ranger, and uh, part of their ranger training was staying up many, many hours. And they would have to stay awake or they could lose points, and it would be detrimental for, for them going through the program. And so some learned a trick that you could use hot sauce to keep yourself awake, and you can put hot sauce on your tongue, and it'll keep you awake. And then someone started putting hot sauce under their eyes. And it works until you get hot sauce in your eye. (laughs) Doesn't work so well. It'll keep you awake. And friends, this is what we need. We need the hot sauce. (laughs) We need that stimulation to stay awake, to be vigilant, to wait for that coming day. And we don't know when it is. And our lives can be filled with all kinds of disappointments that can be distractions that can deter us from being vigilant. And the hot sauce is the Word of God affirming us in the promises, the sacraments of God affirming us in all that God intends to do for us through the resurrected Jesus. Because our God does plan to renew the world. His Son is enthroned at His right hand. He rules over everything. And it gives us a new perspective about all of life. It gives us a perspective about our sufferings. It gives us perspective about trials. It gives us perspective about politics. It gives us perspective about our daily lives that we are to stay awake, serving Him faithfully. And friends, so there is a great deal that we don't know about this passage It'll be interesting the day when we sit down with Jesus in a new heavens and earth and He gets to give us His commentary on it. I will be the first in the cattle line to go through. 
It's perplexing. But there's also things we know. We know everything necessary for our salvation. We know that Jesus, through death and resurrection, is the King who cancels our sins. And we know that He's returning. We don't know when, but it will be good, and everything will be right, and every manner of things will be right. 